Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting, and also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode 54, part 1, Dissecting a Pot and Peg Call. I am your host and probably the only person listening to this podcast who is glad that it is currently not spring turkey season. I know, if you're driving, you probably just swerved off the road and had an accident when you heard that, and I hope that that didn't happen. But... The reason that I'm glad that it is currently not spring turkey season is that I pulled my calf muscle while running yesterday and I can hardly walk. So if it were turkey season right now in Alabama, I would be struggling big time. And the main reason that I'm telling you this is because I want to let you know that if you got me starting on your fantasy football team for Sunday, you may want to put me on your bench and bring another player in because there is a huge cue by my name in fantasy football right now. I just don't think I'm going to be able to play Sunday. So bench me, go ahead and start Aaron Rodgers instead, and good luck to you Sunday. We are 152 days, 7 hours, 50 minutes, and 33 seconds away from opening day of turkey season in Alabama. I've got a great episode for you today where we are going to basically break down a pot and peg call and talk about all of the good stuff that you need to know about pot and peg calls before you go and buy another one. Before we get into the show, just a few housekeeping items. First, I would like to thank DT for his review that he left on iTunes. DT says, five stars, great resource for a new hunter. Andy, I'm about two weeks out from the opening of fall turkey season here in Virginia and my first time in the turkey woods. Your podcast is a great resource for me as a new hunter and I'll keep listening for all the great insights you and your guests provide. DT, thank you so much for leaving the review. I appreciate you taking the time to do that and I appreciate your kind words about the show and I wish you much luck and safe hunting this fall turkey season. When you do bag a bird, Email me a picture to pix at iamturkeyhunting.com and I will post it on Twitter and post it on Facebook and share the turkey hunting love with you. So good luck to you and thanks again for the review. 
So do you guys remember last week when I said that I was done with freeconferencecall.com and that the only reason that I used them on the last interview was because I had issues with Skype? Well, my Skype issues are resolved. I guess I should say it this way. The Skype issues that I had on the previous interview have been resolved. You see, somebody hacked my Skype account, spent all of the money that I had in the account making calls, and then overdrew the account and Skype put a hold on my account. They suspended my account, so I was unable to make calls with it. So the interview that I did last week with Dave Owens and Rob Fridley, I used freeconferencecall.com to record that interview. And I thought the audio was bad on it. I've had a couple people tell me that the audio was not that bad. So I swore up and down I was not going to use them again. Well, I lied. But I had no idea that once I got my suspended Skype account unsuspended, I had no idea I was going to have so many issues with dropped calls with Skype. So in this interview this week, Skype dropped the call eight different times, and we were not even halfway through the interview. So I threw my hands in the air and said, let's reschedule. The information was just too good to not get it all recorded, and I was afraid that as much as we were cutting in and out, I was going to lose a lot of information. So I just pulled the plug and I said, let's reschedule, try again. Maybe Skype will have the issues worked out. Maybe it's the internet on my end and it'll get worked out. So we did that, rescheduled the call for a different day. Everyone got on that time and lo and behold, we had the same Skype issues again. So I couldn't take it anymore. I was very frustrated. I said, let's jump on freeconferencecall.com and get this thing recorded and knock it out. The audio is not that bad. It's just not as good as I want it to be and as it normally is on the show. So if you can deal with it, I am in the process of working out another alternative to my Skype problems. And I'm on to a couple of things and hopefully I'll have all of those worked out before the next interview. So I just told you that the content in this episode is awesome and that I wanted to be sure we got it all. This is a great episode. And it kind of reminds me of eighth grade biology class where we dissected all sorts of critters and parts of critters from eyeballs to pigs and cats. And what I remember about dissecting all these critters in biology is that we learned what all of those parts inside of those animals were and what purposes they served. And then we were tested afterwards. Don't worry about listening to this episode because I'm not going to test you on anything that you learned today. I'm going to leave that for the turkeys to do. But in this episode, I have two guests on the show. I have another friend of the show, Brent Rogers, who is from Iowa. And I also have Adam Prouty with Prouty Turkey Calls on the show. Now, Brent Rogers made the suggestion to me a few weeks ago of having a call maker on the show to teach us about pot and peg calls. Kind of a what goes into them and why type of show. I thought it was a great topic, so I decided to contact Adam Prouty, who follows the show on social media and has shared the show a time or two on his page, to see if Adam would be interested in joining us. Adam jumped at the opportunity because he loves to talk turkey calls and turkey hunting. Brent had several questions for Adam, so I asked Brent to join us as well during the interview, and he jumped at the opportunity also. 
And what happened next was podcasting magic. So, you know, like last week, when you get two or more turkey hunters together on a phone call, there's going to be a lot of talking going on. We really got wrapped up in the topic. We lost track of time on the call and spent over two hours together on the call. So I've broken this interview up into two parts again. This is part one. I think it's chocked full of unbelievable info, and I hope you agree. Enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Thanks for joining us today, guys. I'm excited to have on the line with me Adam Prouty with Adam Prouty Turkey Calls and a friend of the show, Brent Rogers. And Brent actually suggested this topic of dissecting hot and peg calls. And what Brent wanted to know was really what is it that goes into these calls? Why is it that one call makes one sound better than another call? Why is it that one call sounds better than another call? So when Brent made the recommendation to me, I thought, you know, that is a fantastic topic. It's something that I'm very interested in learning about. And I bet we have a great call maker out there who can share information with us. And so I dug up Adam and asked him if he wanted to join us on the show, and he readily agreed to do that. So, Adam, how are you today and where are you? I'm doing good. I'm uh, down here in southeast Georgia, uh, in a little town called Little Withy. All right. Brent, how are you today and where are you? Well, Andy, I'm fantastic because I'm talking turkey. That's always, that always <laughs> makes me happy. And I am in southern Iowa, uh, where I live, and I'm excited as fall turkey season opens here tomorrow. Oh, man, how awesome. Got to tell you, I'm a little bit jealous about that. <laughs> yeah, you're you're lucky. You get a fall season. We don't have one down here in Georgia. Oh, it's yeah, a little there's... different. I tend to love the spring season first, but when there's still a few months to go, this helps take the edge off. Oh, no yeah, doubt. definitely, definitely. No doubt. Well, and Brent, I don't know if you remember the episode where I had J.T. Byrne on talking I do. about turkey dogs, but that got me fired up about fall turkey hunting and trying that out. You know, I enjoy hunting behind dogs, and, and I thought, you know, that would be something really different, something I've never done before, and combine two things that I enjoy doing, which is hunting behind dogs and hunting turkeys, so that'd probably be something yeah. pretty cool. But That would be a neat experience. Yeah, yeah sure would. I, I would love to experience something like that. Yeah, so that got me, that got me thinking about trying to slip off somewhere this fall and out of state and do a, a fall turkey hunt. So I'm I'm still mulling that over in my head, and I may end up jumping on that here before too long. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you should. Um, Andy, I'd, if, if I could, I'd just like to take a minute just to say thank you for your time and efforts in producing the podcast. And I, I'm sure you're underappreciated by all of us. And I don't know if any other listeners are paying you, but I'm shamelessly enjoying this for free. So thanks for caring so much about the content. You've been really willing to take feedback. And so I just encourage anybody that listens to the show to get in touch with Andy. And he listens even to a fast-talking Yankee like myself. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you saying that, Brent. You know, I'm getting as much as you guys are getting out of it. And so for me to get on the phone with an expert in some facet of turkey hunting and talk turkey for an hour to hour and a half to two hours a week, man, I'm enjoying it. So I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, every once in a while I get these emails from you guys out there listening to the show just saying thank you for doing the show, and I do appreciate those emails very much, and I always, always, always try to respond to those. So if you email me and you do not hear back from me, 
then try it again because there's a good chance that my firewall caught it because if you take the time to email me, I'm going to respond. So, you know, I, I just appreciate anybody that takes time to acknowledge and say thank you or just to say hello. So I always enjoy hearing from everybody out there. But thank you for saying that. Sure thing. Well, Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into turkey hunting. Yeah, I kind of got a chuckle out of when Brant said a fast-talking Yankee because that is just about what I am. I was <laughs> born and raised in upstate New York. I never went outside to steer anything. I'm, I pretty much stayed as a homebody my whole life and hunted our uh, old farm up there in, in upstate New York. And shortly thereafter, and I think it was about three or four years after I, I graduated high school, I ended up enlisting in the Army and was shipped off to Fort Hood, Texas. Shortly thereafter that, I got run up to go to Iraq and been back and forth several different times and you know like all the whole time I I just kind of missed turkey hunting the whole time so you know I started making an effort to uh, have the army try to send me places where they're good turkey hunting and I got into turkey hunting uh, oh 22 years ago it was long before that though you know my grandfather my parents had split up when I was a I was really young. I was probably about six or seven years old. And my grandfather, I don't know what he's seen in me, but, you know, he, he vested a lot of time and interest in teaching me a little bit about life. And he was he was an old World War II veteran. And at the time, you know, when you're, you're six or seven years old, old people seem really grumpy to you. And nowadays they don't. But anyways, he took a lot of time and invested a lot of effort in me. And I just... I remember uh, I was probably about seven, maybe eight years old, and he took me up to our farm one day, and, you know, I remember my grandmother, he was on the way out with the 12-gauge, and I always remember he always take the 12-gauge when we'd go up to the farm, and he was on the way out the door, and my grandmother, I could, I heard her yelling at him, I don't think he's ready to, to do that yet, and my grandfather, I just remember him saying, well, he's going to learn sometime, and there's no better time than today, so it was mid-September, and we went up into the woods and we were walking around our old farm up there and, and I, we were sitting on a log and I just remember seeing a couple of squirrels and he shot the squirrels and I was taken back. I didn't know what to do. I was, I was just like, this is so cool. I was like, I didn't know you could even do this. You know, I, and it brought a whole bunch of questions after that and everything. And every day I was barking at him. I was like, Hey, let's go shoot squirrels. You know, grandpa, let's go do this. And he's like, ah, we're going to wait for fall turkey season. And I was like, fall turkey season. I was like, I didn't even know we could hunt turkeys. I, at that time, I was like, I thought we got turkeys from the store and everything. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I was just, I was ate up with it from the minute he shot those squirrels. And little did I know that I was about to get fun up even more into it. He took me out into the woods in, uh, during fall turkey season. And my grandfather, now that I look back on it, you know, he was, he was what we turkey hunters call the old timers and stuff. He had that, he was an old timer. I'll never forget it. We broke a flock. Well, he broke a flock of maybe 30, 35 birds. And back then, you know, it was not uncommon to see flocks like that in upstate New York. Nowadays, you don't see that many gathered together. I don't know if New York's just, I don't know if it's the area that I hunt in New York or what it is, but New York's numbers seem to be down a little bit over the last few years. And yeah. But he broke a flock of about 30, maybe 40 birds. And I, I was not really accustomed to the whole tax behind fall hunting at the time. And when he went in there and he was shouting and running every different direction, trying to break these birds and every to the three winds. And I was just standing there just like, I don't know what to do. I was speechless. I, you know, and I looked at him and I was like, Grandpa, I was like, why did you scare all the turkeys off or anything? He's like, Dog, don't worry about it. He's like, they come back. That's how you do it. And, you know, I was just still standing there and he's headed on his way down about 50 yards down to a big old oak tree. And I hear him yell at me, come on, cockroach. We got work to do. And that was my grandfather's pet name for me because I would always sneak in there 
in the mornings when my grandmother had to watch me before school and eat all of his donuts. So he started nicknaming me the cockroach. It was a term of endearment, but it was it was something that has always stuck with me and everything. He always called me the cockroach. And but yeah, and uh, we ended up feeling the deal on a, a nice hom that day, and it was I, it was something that it was just a I was totally eyes wide open and. You know, watching my grandfather, now that I look back on it, how he used to run his calls and everything, I was like, boy, that man can run a call. Uh, even looking back on it today with the experience that I've gained and everything, he runs a box call. Oh, he ran a box call. It would just put some people to shame. There's things in there, you know, when you're seven or eight years old or how old you are you're, and you're, it's your first time, you just you watch it and you're just like, you don't really know what everything is. What, what's happening at the time and you're just like wow what you know and now that I look back at it and you get older and I gained my own experiences through turkey hunting I understood what he was doing and what kind of calls he was making and, and all that stuff and it was just it was a good experience and it, I, it started the addiction from there on out with me and 22 years later I'm, I'm just as ate up with it as this is the first day that I went out in the woods with him it's something interesting that I think everybody should probably get a chance to experience in their life if they haven't tried turkey hunting i think that somebody should take them out and you know show them the ropes a little bit and it's just a whole nother area that to be explored and so so that's a little bit how i got into it and it pretty much ate me up my whole life from there on out and i got back from iraq and i started losing focus a lot on a lot of things around and this is before i even got into call making and turkey hunting seemed to be the only getaway i could take to get out in the woods and just kind of clear my mind and so you know, when we had the off season, I was in Missouri at the time stationed at Fort Leonard Wood. And I was like, there's got to be something I can do besides just run around the hills and scout turkeys all day that I can extend my love for turkey hunting out. And lo and behold, I started getting online and looking around and I started seeing people that were, could make homemade calls. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. This is something that, you know, maybe I would enjoy because I always enjoyed drop class all through high school. So I like dealing with wood and stuff like that and doing woodworking. So I was like, well, maybe there's something I can get out of this and see if it helps with the focus and things like that. So I went out and I found on Craigslist an old beat-up lathe and some other tools and everything. So I got started getting into that and I started turning my first turkey calls. And I was I was impressed with them, but you know they didn't sound too much like a turkey. I mean, they were hard to get a sound out of at the time, and I just kind of self-taught from there until I met a good friend of mine and who decided uh, he was going to mentor me in it. And it was a, a blessing that he wanted to take the time to actually talk me through a lot of stuff and teach me a lot of the technical aspects of call making and it paid off dividends. I've been very blessed the last several years to be able to compete in competitions and actually bring home some hardware because the judges think that my calls were, were decent, you know. So that's about how I got into all this. And I mean, one, one aspect of turkey hunting uh, led into another and both of are pretty much an addiction to me, uh, for me so that's yeah. about it good deal brent how did you end up into turkey hunting well i had a colleague that he, he's like a lot of us he starts to get glazed over eyes just before spring and walked around with a mouth call and and he just he i could tell that it was so good it, ha it was something i had to experience so I bought myself an HS strut mouth call, and first day I went to the woods, I thought, I sound more like a dying goose than I do a turkey. <laughs> went back, watched the video again, and I'll be darned if I didn't get a turkey that spring. I've had to glaze in my eyes ever since. Man, yeah, that's awesome to get one your first season. That's, that's wonderful. I wish I'd been that fortunate. but It definitely spoils you. you. 
<laughs> it does, and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm like most of you. I, I still do it because it's still as exciting as the first one. But, Adam, what you said is, is also true. I enjoy helping that person that gets their first bird. And that's, uh, to me, that there's no greater accomplishment than helping somebody get that first turkey. It's just like experiencing my first one all over again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I enjoy now that I've, I've got children of my own, I enjoy taking those those guys out and just watching and being able to just call for them and even friends and everything, just being able to get out there and, and just call for them. is I, I think it's it's getting to the point where 22 years in, uh, I'm starting to share a lot more than, than what I was doing, you know, 15 years ago and stuff. So it's a whole nother aspect of it and stuff. You get to mentor somebody and pass a, pass this wonderful sport on to somebody else. And hopefully they do the same when they get the experience and they get a family of their own and they have friends that they want to mentor. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's important that we get back and get some, bring some new people into the sport and share what we have because, as you know, if we don't bring anybody in, eventually it's going to die out and the animals are going to be the ones to suffer. Absolutely. I think people will be a lot worse off if, if we don't have any more hunters, but the animals will definitely suffer from it. And I know all that sounds crazy, but us hunters that are listening to the show get it. So I don't need to repeat all that at all. Okay, so I'm doing something that I don't normally do. I am cutting into the middle of an interview. The reason that I'm cutting into the middle of this interview is that I want to let you know that I have pieced together one part of one of the dropped calls from Skype into the interview. Remember I told you that I tried the interview, didn't work, we rescheduled it for a second day and did another call then? Well, I took a piece from the interview on the first day, and I've pieced it into this next part. That's why you're going to hear the big difference in the audio quality, but I did that just to save a little bit of time for the guests, and because the rapid-fire Q&A went so well the first go-round that there was no reason to do it again, even though I was going to play a little prank on Adam in the rapid-fire Q&A. I chose not to do it because he was so gracious to come back on and try this again. I didn't want to mess with him too bad. So I just wanted to let you guys know what's going on here because you're going to hear me talking and then you're going to hear the rapid fire Q&A fire up and it's going to sound a little bit out of sequence. But the rest of the interview from the rapid fire Q&A on, solid gold. Enjoy it. Well, Adam, this is the part of the show where I'll ask you to do the 30 questions And I think what I'm going to do, rather than pull a prank on you like I was going to do, is Uh I'll just pull the 30 questions from the other interview. Okay. We'll speed this thing up because I I was going to mix a couple of questions in here, like who was the 21st president of the United States and things (laughs) like that. I'm not going to mess with you on that. So I'm going to pull the 30 questions from the interview we did the other night because I think other than maybe a quick cutout that Skype heard us on, we got most of those in pretty good. So I'm going to put you to test. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So I've got 30 questions that I want to run through and ask you. I want to put a timer to the questions and run through these 30 questions, get you to answer them as quick as you can. It's just some general questions about turkey hunting and your personal preferences about things, just a way for people to get to know you really quick and some things that you may not have ever been asked before. All right, Uh, I'm game. Let's do this. All right, so the time to beat is three minutes and one second. And that is Wayne Fears. 
record. So we're going to see if you can top that one. And I will start the first question as soon as I start the clock. Okay. And how many full-body turkey mounts do you own? None. How many turkeys did you kill last year? Three. Diaphragm, box, pot and peg, or wing bone? Pot and peg. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried? Baked. Wild turkey, on the rocks, neat, with soda? Oh, that was quick. Number of grand slams? None. All right. Make of shotgun? Mossberg. Make of your favorite shotgun turkey shell? Longbeard, number five. All right. Two and three quarter inch, three inch, or three and a half inch? Three inch. I've got to ask it, ask it even though you've answered it. Four, five, six, or blended? Five. Have you ever killed a bearded hen? Never. Have you ever killed a jake? Yes. Would you rather have a 10-minute successful hunt on a two-year-old bird or a four-hour-long hunt with a clean miss on a four-year-old? 10-minute two-year-old. Favorite camo pattern? Bossy Oak Obsession. Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog? For the dinner. More or less than five strikers in your turkey vest? More. 30 mile per hour winds blowing at home the last day of turkey season. Are you hunting or sleeping in? Oh, baby, I'm going. <laughs> state you killed your first turkey in? New York State. State you killed your last turkey in? Georgia. Sit in a blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger or run and gun for one hour and not shoot? Oh, I'm running gun all day long and not shoot. All right. Some of these you may not have. Rios or Osceolas? Uh, Rios. I actually have killed a Rio. All right. Rio or Eastern? Eastern. Eastern or Merriam's? Eastern. Public land out west or private land in the southeast? Public land out west. Field turkeys or woods turkeys? Woods turkeys all day long. All right. You answered this one indirectly. Pump or automatic? Pump. Shotgun scope, rifle sight, holographic sight, or Holographic. Beads? Holographic. Rubber boots, leather boots, or snake boots? Snake boots. You roost a bird this afternoon and it's pouring rain at daylight. Do you hunt? Oh, baby, I'm going. <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm going. There's Favorite place keep me you've out. ever hunted? Uh, Missouri. All right. You killed it. Two minutes, 53.96 seconds. All right. Sweet. That's pretty strong. So that was fun. I appreciate you running through those. And where in Missouri did you hunt? It was Plato, Missouri. You know what? what's great about Missouri is down around Fort, Fort Leonardwood area where I was stationed is the Mark Plain National Forest. And it's huge. And 95% of it is all open to the public to hunt and horseback ride and everything else. And it was a great experience. And Missouri does a great job of, of upkeeping it and uh, managing it and everything. And I, I had a blast there. I it's probably, If I had a chance to go this fall and, and take vacation to go on a fall hunt, I would be headed back to Plato, Missouri to hunt the Mark Wayne's for fall birds. It, it, some of the best fall hunting I've ever done. Some of the best spring hunting that I've ever had with. So... It was it was absolutely awesome. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It was it was something else. Hey, like I said, uh, I've I've had to travel and everything. So it's it, it being part of the military. It's almost like the military pays for me to go hunt turkey sometimes. So it's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've earned it. So yeah. Oh, Brent, do you have a question you want to ask Adam? Yeah, so Adam, maybe the place to start will will be kind of at the most basic thing for me. And if you could just dissect a pot and peg call for us and tell us what goes into one. That's simple enough. I mean, when you're talking pot and peg calls, there's a couple different variations to them. You have trough calls and then you have your regular round friction call. So I'll start with the, the regular round friction call itself. You have the body of the call, which is usually 
you know, wood or you'll find plastic ones or acrylic or some, some synthetic uh, out there. There's a lot of people that choose to use acrylic, and acrylic is a really good weatherproof body for a call, pretty much impermeable besides what's in the sound holes uh, for water getting in. Or as opposed to wood, wood is all, no matter how much you feel wood up or uh, you try to keep water from getting in, wood's constantly got a moisture content to it. So it moves back and forth slightly, not enough where the naked eye would really see it. Sometimes it moves drastically. It just depends. But wood is generally the custom call maker's material of choice. You usually see the manufacturing companies out there, they choose to use plastic and acrylic, probably because it's a little less expensive on them than using wood. But you have the body of the pot itself, which is usually wood, plastic, or acrylic. So on top of that, you have a, a playing surface, which is usually slate, glass, aluminum, ceramic, crystal, bronze glass. There's a bunch of different ones out there that you can choose, and all of them have a different tone to them and stuff. So underneath that, you'll find that there's a surface lip there, and that's where the actual surface itself sits on. Below the surface, if you don't own a glass hall, if you're just looking at a slate hall, but if you look in a glass hall, you'll see another surface in there, which is usually wood, slate, glass. Some people use crystal. Some manufacturers will even put a, a plastic soundboard in there, or they'll use um Corian, something to that effect. Well, that soundboard in there isn't just for marketing of calls and putting fancy things on that. I, I kind of equate that to the heart of the call. And there's a bunch of things that that, that soundboard does for a call. And it produces wrath and it produces rollover. It produces tone and pitch. There's, that thing does so much for the call, it, I, I consider it to be the heart of the call. It's very critical that it's in a certain spot for it to be make a really good turkey call and stuff. So you have the soundboard, and then underneath the soundboard, what elevates the soundboard up is the pedestal. And the pedestal, back in the old days, they used to use things like antler pieces. They used washers. Some call makers will even turn their pedestals in with their call. It just depends on how you make the call. Some guys CNC calls. Some guys will put them on a milling machine. And some guys will just turn them straight on the lathe. It all depends what kind of pedestal he wants to put in there. And that pedestal has an effect on the call, too. And that could determine wrath. If the pedestal too might be small, it might create a little bit more wrath in the call. If the pedestal is big, it might mellow the call out some so it and you have washers you have standoffs i prefer to use standoffs in my calls just the way i do them and everything it's kind of my process and it makes things go a little bit easier for me so all that stuff has has an effect on the call the call itself is pretty much one thing just doesn't make the call there's a bunch of different things in there as well and believe it or not the body of the pot or the pot itself has a big role in it too the side thickness and the bottom thickness and all that stuff has to work together in order to have a, a good turkey call. So uh, hopefully that answered your question a little bit, Brent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit more because going out um, either at a sporting goods store or I go to one of these turkey shows and see all the call maker booths, you know, I see these differences in, in the calls. And they the calls on the surface look all the same and, well, maybe not all the same, but very similar. But there's so much that goes into them, into each one of those calls that affects the sound made by that call. You know, the, the craftsmanship and the thought that goes into making each one of those affects the sound. And so I want to dig in a little bit and pick your brain and talk about some of the differences in what we see in these calls and how that kind of affects the sounds that we get out of it. So in other words, how does the diameter of the pot affect the call? You know, is, is a bigger diameter pot make a raspier sound or more of a hollow sound or, you know, what things like that, the depth of the pot, the soundboard materials, the number of sound holes, 
how do all of those things affect the sound of the call? Yeah, so this is something that you could write a novel on. You know, you're going to get different replies and and different opinions from other call makers because I don't think there's anything that's scientifically proven in this field. Every call maker makes their calls drastically different. And even if you were to tear apart, someone was to tear apart one of my calls, they're not going to get it to sound exactly the same. But you're going to get different opinions from different call makers on what causes what in the call. And that's all about how they make the call. So the key point here, and I think, is, is where do we start from? A lot of call makers use different thicknesses of wood and everything, and that can affect the sound of a call. And it, say, for instance, my mentor, who, the guy who mentored me, starts out at 7-8, whereas opposed to me, I like to start out roughly a, a little over three-quarters of an inch, which is, you know, a nice compact call. Some people prefer a larger call, and none of them are bad by any means. I'm not calling any call maker out of the norm by saying that, but I played some great one-inch calls, and I played some great 7-8-inch calls, and there's some really dandy uh, three-quarter-inch calls out there. And, you know, it's, it's all up to the call maker, and it, it has an effect on the call. So it all determines, like you said, pot depth. You're going to have different specs for different woods and everything, and woods come into play down the road. But so we'll start off with the pot depth. So I prefer to run a little bit shallower pot than probably most. I don't know where everybody runs their stuff out. That's kind of like Colonel Sanders' the secret recipe. If a call maker gives you a sec, then mm-hmm. I, start to, I start to sweat a little bit and stuff because you don't know what you're going to get into or anything. So everything that I've, I've accomplished, I've kind, of, I've kind of taught myself a little bit and made my own method. And, but I prefer to, a little bit shallower pot and I don't go anything over probably a half inch into the pot. And there's some guys that will go over a half inch and they make a fine sounding call. And I, I, I choose not to go anything over a half inch. But that, that shallower pot probably going to give you a little bit younger of a hen sound. You're not going to get the, the deep throatiness that you would get as if you had a deeper pot. That throatiness is where you get into your deeper pots and stuff. And this is just okay. from my experience and everything is you have to find a balance in between there. If you go too shallow, your call is going to be too flat, probably. You're probably not going to have a lot of zing on the backside of the yelp. But if you go too deep, you're probably going to end up sounding too hollow, and you'll end up having too much breath in the call, and it'll sound like you're swinging a wiffle ball bat every time you run the striker down. So depth of the pot contributes a little bit in the rollover and to the actual front and back end of the yelp. So you're going to get a little bit more throaty if you have a deeper call, and you're going to have a younger sounding, not-so-throaty hen when you have a shallower call. And it, it depends on what kind of turkey you're going, you're trying to replicate. You might want to go and make a call that you can get a, a gobbler sound out of. So maybe you'd go a little bit deeper in the pot and change your soundboard distance a little bit to get that more deeper, throatier yelp out of it. So that's pretty much it on the pot depth. And sound holes are a whole different story all on its own. And, you know, I base everything off of my calls. And I run an eight-hole pattern on my calls. And I think that's probably about industry norm is an eight-hole pattern. And some guys prefer to use maybe 10 holes or they use 12 holes and they use different size holes. So I use smaller holes on mine depending upon what I'm trying to accomplish out of it. So for a good example is when we go to submit these calls to competition, the question of the <laughs> the question that I always ask is where is it going to be held? You know, is the, is the room going to be carpeted or is it going to be non-carpeted? So right. if it's carpeted, I'll always make my sound holes a little bit larger because that carpet's going to suck in a lot of stuff of the acoustics. And you're trying to get that, that call out there and you're trying to ring the, ring the room so everybody's hearing it. 
if you're going to a non-carpeted room, you want to make your, your holes maybe a little bit smaller because you don't want it to echo too much inside. But to answer the question, larger holes are going to project more sound. Smaller holes aren't going to project as much, much sound. Now, there's a whole other flip side of the coin there, and that's how many holes you put for the size that you're making them. Yeah. If you put, there's some people out there that will drill almost 20 holes in a call, make a pattern, or they'll make a turkey trap pattern in it and stuff. And if you're making bigger holes, you might need to use less of them to help equalize it and everything it's just it's never ending you could there's a hundred different variations and combinations out there and and you know it you can't just say one one person puts eight holes in their stuff at a quarter inch is is one the game and everything but there's guys out there that drill nine thirty second holes and then and they'll put four in there and it sounds great they equalize it that way and stuff by not putting more holes they just put a few less and they make bigger holes so mm-hmm. soundboard material, <laughs> soundboard materials, usually you find in soundboard materials, people like to use synthetic, sometimes Corian, maybe uh, plastic or acrylic. But the go-to ones that I think I've found are pretty much your wood, uh, very yellow heart, domestic and, and both exotic and, and stuff like that. You can use those for, for your wood soundboards. Plate and glass are the industry standards usually when it comes to soundboards and stuff. Everything's going to give you a different tone. Even when you're in the wood soundboard, wood soundboard will give you a totally different tone between different wood that you're using. Cherry's a domestic, so it might mellow your yells out quite a bit. And yellow heart's a little bit denser, so it might give a little bit more to the yelp on the front and back end. So it's all up to the call maker how, what kind of call he's looking to make and what sound he's trying to get out of the call. So hopefully that answered your question a little bit deeper. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I know there's so much, like I said, that goes into that and so many different variables, but that does kind of help me out because I've always wondered if you took identical calls and had one call be deeper than the other, but everything else identical, what's the difference there? But yeah, that's that's exactly what I was looking for there. Yeah, you get, and the thing is, too, is the wood type. Wood type will, will drastically change things for you, too, because I quickly found out I'm not rich by any means, but I started off turning walnut, and, you know, once I got walnut down and I, I moved on to a different wood and I tried putting the same specs into that to different wood, and it turned out to be a booger, all 10 of them, when I made them and I was just like wow I was like there must be something I'm doing wrong and it, sooner or later I, I got a knock in the head and said well this wood's a little bit denser than that wood maybe you need to do this to it and sure enough every wood's got a different spec to it generally you start off in the same same roundabout ballpark but every wood's gonna vary a little bit different with your spec that you do and surfaces on top of that whatever type of surface that you use can change your spec big time as well so there's just like I said you could write novels on this I mean the novel will never end so Right. Yeah, it's it's, cra- it's crazy. I mean, you couldn't, you'd have to devote almost a year of call maker segment to, to get most of the information out that you wanted to and stuff. So, yeah, well, I would imagine most call makers would give us that information and then they'd have to kill us to keep it secret. Yeah, it's, a, it's like the Colonel Sanders secret <laughs> recipe and stuff. So, <laughs> it's uh, some call makers will help you out and some are so tight lipped that they don't want to do it and that's fine. And I mean, they've worked for every penny of it. And, and I mean, some sure. of them have, haven't been mentored and they had to find all this stuff out on their own. And they've wasted hundreds and hundreds of dollars on wood and materials and stuff just to get where they're at and mm-hmm. teach their own. And I respect that. They're fine. But yeah. hey, one thing that, you know, hey, people uh, maybe listening to this and stuff, just don't ask a call maker in fact. And <laughs> that, that's a bad way to start off with people and hey, when you're in this industry and you go up to a call maker and you start asking them questions about how thick is your bottom, how thin are your sides, and how deep is your soundboard and stuff like that, you tend to get a weird look from time to time. 
Yeah, I would imagine. Randy, so, you have another question you want to ask? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I'm just wondering, Adam, so if I'm shopping for a call or I'm talking to a call maker, you know, you get to hold a call, uh, I don't know if it's every day, but probably a lot more days of the year than, than most of us do. And so I'm just wondering, as you talked about soundboard and plane surface and wood combinations, what I'm wondering is, what can you tell us in terms of what combinations of those match up for the best all-around calls that we're going to use while hunting? Yeah, so I'll break it down into two categories, Brent. Basically, domestic and exotic, and then we'll go. I'll throw something I'll real quick in there on you at the end of it. So this is stuff that worked for me. This is my tried and true, and I tend not to change my mind a lot on things. And you talk to a different call maker, and they might say something totally different. But this is what's worked for me, and this is what I, I my go-tos are in the woods. And they're my go-tos when I go to sell calls to customers as well. And there's another thing to it, too. And everybody's got a little bit of a different ear for what they think a hen turkey sounds like. And not all, every hen in the woods sounds exactly the same either, and we all know that. So... Basically, it's all up to the call maker and the fact that he puts in it, but some are going to recommend different woods, and, and they might have a, a different fact for that wood that might give it a totally different sound. But the basis for some of these are 90% of the call makers will tell you, yep, that's my go-to for that. That's my go-to. So for domestics, on the domestic side of the house, I mean, it would sound here in the United States. Uh, it's hard to beat a walnut slate call, slate over glass. It just is really hard to beat it. It, slate is just my, I, I love slate, but slate is just, it's a booger to deal with sometimes, and you never get exactly, exactly, no matter how much you can replicate your, your specs in a call, slate will always throw you for a loop when it comes down to the end, end of it and you go to play them. You could have one call that sounds totally awesome, and then the other nine or ten that you just made sound completely different. And they're not bad calls by any means, but they sound completely different because slate is, is just a it's natural. And what I mean is that it could be taken from a different part of the quarry when they mine it, and the batch gets mixed in together, so you could have some slate that's softer. You could have some slate that's harder. You could have some other stuff happen to it as well. Slate is notorious for holding moisture, but if you can get a good batch slate, and this is where a lot of people, when they shop for calls, they don't get playing because they're wrapped up in plastic on a store, a store shelf and stuff. So you really, if you're looking to buy a slate call, going with a custom call maker is awesome because he's played that. He, he can guarantee, and he usually puts a warranty on it if you're not happy or a break or, you know, it's not to your liking, you can send it back to him and stuff. But walnut slate over glass, that is my first go-to right off the bat in the morning. It gives you a nice mellow sound. The slate mellows out the yelp. It's got a nice sharp back end on it sometimes. It just depends on how you make it, though. But I like it. It's my That's my number one. Probably my number two, if I was going to pick a, another domestic, would be a cherry double glass. Cherry is another one of my favorite domestics that I like to use. I think it's another great go-to call, and it just gives you another sound to use in the woods. And then... I can't be forgetting about maple, maple slate over glass or a maple slate over slate. I love it. As you notice that I've, I haven't really gone outside the slate category yet, but it's just hard to beat a good slate. It's, it's just really hard to beat a good slate call yeah. and everything. That's yeah. your that's that's your number one bread and butter. If you ask most turkey hunters what's the most realistic friction call and everything, a lot of them are going to tell you slate right off the bat. A good slate call is deadly, and it, it's killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds for, for years and stuff every year. So it, it, you just got to go with what works. And the domestics are great for slate calls. I love I love walnut. I love cherry for the glass. And maple is an awesome slate call as well. So it's hard to beat 
feet of maple slate over slate or a maple slate over glass uh, soundboard. So that that's really good as far as what you're looking for in domestic. As far as exotic, though, and by exotic, what I mean is um, stuff that comes from South America, Africa, other parts of the world. Just the past couple of years, I started using Yellow Heart for crystal calls and aluminum calls, and it is a humdinger. I love it. It's probably one of my go-to exotics when I go to make stuff. It makes an okay slate call. It's a little trebly, but as far as the uh, exotic for crystal or aluminum, that's a hard one to beat. Crystal over slate, and I like to use an aluminum over glass in it, but yellow heart, really good. Another good exotic that you're going to find is probably Paduke. Paduke makes a great glass call, and it makes a good slate call as well. Uh, it's really hard to hard to beat those two together, but glass and slate, probably a, a glass over, you can do a glass over glass, it's really good, and or there's a glass, you can make a glass over slate, and that's phenomenal for Paduke. Slate over glass, definitely for Paduke, that's that's my first choice for that if I was choosing a soundboard. Another good exotic out there is the Bingo. The Bingo makes an excellent slate call as far as that goes. Slate over slate is a great call to put in the Bingo. So maybe that that opens up people's horizons to let them know that, hey, we don't just have to get walnut and cherry and maple and everything. There's hundreds and hundreds of different types of wood, thousands of different species out there. Every call maker has their favorites, and those are mine. But you can make the best of both worlds in there as well. So you can do what's called a laminate call, or most custom call makers make laminate. Some do, some don't, but most of them will delve into laminate. And that's combining, you can combine two exotic together, or you can buy, combine domestic and exotic together in the process of laminating it. So you cut some uh, strips of wood, and what you're going to do is you're going to, is you glue them up and, and let them sit overnight, and you press them really hard together with clamps. And you get a, a totally different sound out of it. And it's mixed in the best of both worlds. Like I said, you'll have, you might have cherry and purple heart, which is one of my favorite types of laminates. I'll use a cherry and purple heart double glass hall. Or uh, my favorite this year, and I think I sent a picture to Andy and you earlier, was a call that I came out with this year, which is Yellow Heart in Paduke, and that's an aluminum over slate. I'm madly in love with that call. A lot of guys will tell you that they love aluminum calls, and I fell in love with aluminum a few years ago, and I choose to use a slate soundboard in it, and it, I, just in my opinion, I think it makes it sound a little bit more turkey and stuff, so... But, you know, it, everything boils down to wood density and stuff when you go to design calls. And it, like I said, there's novels that you could write on and stuff. But I think uh, when I go to do my research and I go to develop calls and stuff, basically what I do is I go to the Jenka sale. It's a sale that lists wood densities. And I find which woods are softer and which woods are harder and which woods might match up good together. And I go from there and I develop a spec off them. So, I mean, it's just it, there's thousands of different combinations that you can go off of. And, but those are my favorite right off the bat, and I think those are sure shot if you try one out. Yeah. I say I'm going to be looking forward to my next uh, show I can go to now. I, I may still feel like a rookie on some of that, but I feel like I'll have a lot more chance to ask the right questions and understand what it is that I'm doing and hearing. So I, that was great. Well, I'm that glad was... I could help you out a little bit there, Brent. <laughs> Like I said, it 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 take it take me almost years to get through a lot of the different combinations and everything and what affects what. And it's just it's never ending. You're you're constantly learning something when you're doing this, and it's just like oh well that that made that a little bit more raspier this time. So you know, and the thing that I, my mentor taught me when I first started this out is don't ever change 
two things at once because you'll never figure out what did it. So <laughs> it's just one step at a time, and it's a the game of making calls is measured and uh, you measure success in, in thousandths of an inch. So one one thousandth of an inch can make or break the call for you. It just depends on where you're at with it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of the how the the woods and the strikers match up best with the with the different most common calling surfaces. But before I do, I have a follow up question for you on because you talked about slate and the density of the slate and all of that. And I think for most of us, that slate is the best all around call because you can be as quiet as you need to be on a slate call, or you can get on them and you can crank on them and make them very loud. And you oh yeah, absolutely. You can make the most beautiful purrs in the world and turn around and make just an extremely good assembly yell. I mean, they're yep. just versatile. It's the most versatile calling surface, in my opinion, as far as a pot and bag call is concerned. But that, not so much the surface, because I know every surface is different, whether you're talking about ceramic or you're talking about slate or aluminum, but the consistency you get out of wood from one, let's say, maple pot to the next maple pot, does that vary a whole lot? Because I would imagine if you're talking about these plastic or composite pots that we see so often in the in the big retail chain stores, I would imagine those calls are probably much more consistent from call to call than a wood call would be from call to call, even if it's maple to maple, you know, everything being the same. A maple pot and a maple pot slate call are going to sound probably a little bit different compared to that same composite pot, composite pot slate call. Yeah, it, it it varies, and you're you're correct in the assumption. Here's how it goes as far as the wood. You have a tree, and obviously it's natural, and some are cut earlier than others. Some are cut later on in life. You have your old-growth trees, which generally is how you try to select your wood. You try to find the nice, tightest grain pattern that you can find that makes it the densest. It just depends. People want a softer wood. So you try to find stuff that's generally hard that's going to get you closest to being rot. It's not rotted fast. It's not punk. It's going to be reliable and durable and stuff. And no two trees are, are created the same, and neither is usually the same boards that you pick up out of the wood store because sometimes they come from different trees and stuff. So you're going to get the density of the – I could pick a board of walnut up from down the road. It's a one sawmill, and I could go down to the next sawmill and pick up the same size board, same thickness and everything, and I'll get totally different densities and stuff out of it. And it could be – it's just what time of the year or the time in the life that that tree was cut. I think older trees are going to be harder and more tight-grained. Younger trees are going to be looser grained and they're going to be a little softer. But yeah, it will definitely, it could throw a call definitely. Maple's notorious. It, you have your soft maple, your hard maple. There's different variations of maple out there and they all, they're pretty consistent to a point, but you get a lot of people like to use faulted maple, which is basically a fungus gets into the maple and it causes a black streaking and stuff. And they like to use that. It depends on what stage you get it in. It tends to be a little bit less reliable. So you'll get some inconsistencies with that. Now, with the plastic pots you buy in the big box stores, that's all up to the company that makes them. Usually when you flip one of those over, you're going to see made in China or made in Taiwan or made in Brazil or assembled there too. So the question you got to ask yourself there is, is how many Brazilians or how many uh, Chinese people know anything about turkeys? So those are tested and, and played down there. So 
you know, it, it comes back to consistency. I mean, yes, it's made on a CNC machine. Yes, it's done the same way every time. But I think what happens uh, is when the companies develop their prototypes and everything, some, somewhere down the long line, uh, it strays or uh, something might happen along the lines of glue-up or soundboard settings and stuff like that that kind of makes it sound a little bit off when you play one of those calls from a big box door. And don't get me wrong, when you go to a, uh, one of those box doors and you buy a call, you might get a dandy of a call. But I can guarantee that if you pick up two or three more and buy them and take them home, you're going to get a totally different sound on each one of them. The consistency with mass-produced calls I just don't think is there. And some of them you pay high dollar for. So but that's hopefully that answered your question a little bit better, Andy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since we're talking about the woods and all, which woods and strikers match up the best with the different common calling surfaces that we see, like aluminum, slate, copper, ceramic, glass, so on and so forth? Yeah. Well, my number one go-to whenever I, ma- I, I start matching strikers to calls, and, and what's funny is that when I start into my season and everything, I'll make close to 100, 200 strikers before I even make the call. So I have them sitting here, and, and what I do is I match a striker. Every call that I make, I'll go through hundreds of strikers. I'll, sit here and play, I'll be playing the same call for maybe 45 minutes before I find and I'll narrow it down. I'll go. I'll be like, "Yep, that striker sounds really good on that call. That striker sounds really good on that call. Oh, this one's not so good, but I'll throw it in the backside of the other box right there. I'll play another one because the strikers that you toss that don't sound good on one call might be phenomenal on another call. It's just every call. It doesn't matter how close to the fact that I get. And every uh, I could have ten maple calls lined up right in front of me, and different strikers are going to play better than others on, on each one of them. And it just has, has to do with those minuscule little details and stuff at the end when you finish the call and stuff. So, but, yeah, it takes me 45 minutes to probably match a striker to a call because I've got so many strikers I'm trying to go through, and I want to give the customer the best call that he's got or that I can provide to him and everything. So I'll sit there and go through hundreds of strikers. And usually my number one go-to is diamond wood. Diamond wood is, is kind of – it's coming back, but what had happened is the company that made diamond wood uh, just burnt down within the last few years. So it put call makers at a little bit of a pinch. What you had left, you pretty much – stockpiled it and whoever had some for sale it really drove the price up on it uh, i was paying almost probably two dollars and fifty cents a dowel for a six inch dowel of it so it, it got pretty pricey there for a while but diamond wood is always going to be my number one go-to and how they make diamond wood i could be wrong but I, doing the reading on it and everything is just basically what they do is they take thin little sheets of i think it's birch and what they do is they lay it and they impregnate it with a, an adhesive and they press it really hard under a certain amount of heat and the stuff gets locked hard so basically it, it makes a really good striker it's hard to beat it in a one piece or a two piece and that's that's always going to be my go-to when i make them my second go-to will be an ip every day i love ip and some people know about ip some some call makers haven't really touched it that much but ip is basically what we make our deck out of a lot of people that get high-end deck made they'll pick ipe which is brazilian walnut and that makes a really good striker, and I, it's hard to find a, a bad one in a one-piece. Two-piece, they're hit and miss. It just depends on what kind of call you're running them on. They tend to run a little bit better on plate because they get a little bit better wrath on the back end. You get a little bit more wrath with the IPE. The Binga makes a really good a really good striker if you're using it in a two-piece. It's 
I usually run uh, either walnut heads and, and hard maple heads in there, and that's a whole other animal as well when you go to pick out strikers is what the, the striker head's made out of if you're running a two-piece. And it could be you're running a maple head or a cherry head or a laminate head, and that all affects the sound and the pitch and everything that you're going to get out of the striker. Purple Heart is really good, and it runs really good on aluminum. I like Purple Heart on aluminum, but I always end up bouncing back to my diamond wood when I'm playing it. But uh, Purple Heart is my second go-to on aluminum. I like a Purple Heart on aluminum. Sounds really good. Hickory. Hickory is, is one of my favorites only uh, in one aspect of it is that when I run like Purpot or anything like that, I love Hickory on plate. Hickory and plate make a great combination. They're really good and stuff. And it just, like, again, it just depends on if it's a two-piece, what kind of head you're going to put on it. I haven't ran into too many one-piece hickories. I'm sure they're out there, but I haven't had a chance to play any, so I couldn't really give you any uh, opinion on how they run as a one-piece. But yeah. two-piece, probably with a hard maple head on it, it's great for purring. I love using a hickory striker to purr with. I think you get the most deductive purrs out of it. I, it's just hard to beat. But like I, I mentioned earlier, call makers will put different heads on their, their strikers if they're running two-piece. And it could be a hard maple head, could be a soft maple head, it could be walnut, it could be laminate. And it, again, it all boils down to what the density of the wood is and everything, how that just sounds. So, for instance, I just got in a couple hundred walnut heads the other day, and I've already put together a couple hundred strikers. And I've already noticed there's drastic differences in just doesn't matter how similar I make them. You can see the wood grain and you'll be able to look at the wood grain on the other one and they play totally different. So that's where going in and the call maker makes sure that they're going to match a, a good striker to that call. And they might go through 40, 50, 60 strikers. Usually it'll take me about 20 and I'll just limit it down from there. I might go through 100. It just depends on what I'm, I'm looking for. And usually I can find it within 20 or 30, 30 strikers. I hope I can usually. It's going to be a long night, so... I hope you enjoyed that and got lots of great info that will help you the next time you shop for a turkey call. Be sure to tune in next week when Adam tells us the difference in one-piece and two-piece strikers. There is a difference. He's also going to give us some good weatherproof pot and peg call and striker combinations. He's going to tell us what it is that people do to his turkey calls that make him cringe when they pick them up. Andy's going to tell us the story of his most recent successful turkey hunt. If you enjoyed this week's episode, then do me a few favors. First, forward and share the episode with your hunting buddies on social media, email, and any hunting forums that you're a member of. Post a link to the show on those hunting forums. Post a link to the show on your social media or in an email. Send it to your hunting buddies. That is much appreciated. Number two, Leave the show a five-star rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher Radio if you haven't already. And number three, please subscribe to the show. Subscribing is free and you'll be notified as soon as a new show is uploaded. The fourth thing I want you to do for me is listen to the last two episodes of the Hunt Fish Travel Podcast with Carrie and Rachel. Carrie invited me to be on the show to talk about my alligator hunt back in August and well, we had more fun than three sober people should have on a conference call with their clothes on. So go check that out and be sure to leave the Hunt Fish Travel Podcast an awesome review on iTunes as well. Carrie and Rachel do a great job on the show. They have some really, really cool guests and they cover some great topics as well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. 
I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again for part two next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.